Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I am a liberal. And I am a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies. We are friends. We are friends. How are you this week, Karen? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Chuck? I'm good. I'm good. good. I'm a little aggravated because once again, I got something on my mind, Karen. All right. Ran about it. Do you know who Mike Rowe is? I do. The dirty, the dirty jobs, jobs guy. guy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how he's become this like philosopher or whatever, but people send him questions. And a lady sent him a question about girls getting into the Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. And his response just set me off. You know, it set me off because you heard my I response heard it. to it. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then, I think you're just jealous that people don't ask you questions. They ask me plenty of questions. And- <laughs> And I make up the answers. <laughs> but here's what got me more. As I mm-hmm. dug into it, I found mm-hmm. out that what I read, they took three paragraphs from like a three-page response. Oh, wow. Yeah. When I read the whole thing, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, this is a pretty well thought out thing. So they got me, Karen. They got me on it. <laughs> that's, that's actually kind of what I want to rant about too, but- Go ahead. Although I'm going to take issue with something he said. Okay. He used a term that I hate is snowflakes. Oh, I do too. I hate that term. And I'll tell you why I hate it, Karen. Do you know where snow comes from? The sky? (laughs) Like, I'm not sure what you're wanting me to say here. It comes from clouds. Okay. You know what we are? (laughs) We're the the clouds. (laughs) We're the clouds that spawn the snowflakes. They talk about participation trophies. Those kids didn't buy them. We did. Okay. We are the ones who wanted our kids to feel special. Mm-hmm. We are the ones who got them trophies just for showing up. Oh, a lot of people blame you too. The kids didn't care about them. You know? Yeah. No, a lot of people blame the, the baby boomers as well. Yeah. So, I mean, the kids right. never bought into it. They could care less about trophies. I've coached kids for years. They know when they win and they know when they lose. So you're upset that the blame is on the wrong people. Yes, but I still want to take a shot at the Boy Scouts and your people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. This aggravates me to death. Do you know why the Boy Scouts are accepting girls? Why don't you tell me, Chuck? One word, Karen, and you people love this word. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. Capitalism. 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 You know why they took girls in? But because their business model was failing. Because they were losing money faster than you lose headphones, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) They lost $45 million last year. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're going to take in girls. And you know what? Your people. Okay, I'm going to quit saying your people. Yeah, that would be nice. The right. I'm just trying to figure out. Are you referring to Jews? Are you just (laughs) referring to conservatives? Jews don't care about Boy Scouts. They're not going (laughs) to the woods. No, uh-huh. I, you know what? It, no, it, this burns me to no end, to no end. Mm-hmm. All these people, and it's generally conservatives, saying, how are they going to learn to be men? How are they going to learn to be men? Mm-hmm. How are they going to learn to be men? F*** you. <laughs> if you. No, seriously, I'm serious about this. If you have a son... You show your son how to be a man. I had three boys. I didn't need the right. Boy Scouts to teach mine how to be men. But this is men I hear talking about their experiences in Scouts and how 
That's your job. Your job is to be a man, be an example. The kids are watching you. They'll notice what you do. And I know Boy Scouts do plenty of good things. But if you're a father, that's your job to teach your kid how to be a man. Now, Boy Scouts can be a fun thing. They can teach them character or something else. But it's your job to teach them how to be men. That's it. That's my rant. Fair enough. Well, what I'm going to rant about is kind of similar to the beginning of your rant. I am going to rant about the fact that when I researched this subject, I was incredibly, incredibly discouraged by the lack of credible evidence in the most popular studies. There were several studies that looked really good. They had very they're the ones that you see cited in all the news reports and and they're very well done and they have lovely infographs on them and the information is incredibly slanted and it doesn't give the whole picture and that frustrates me so much because when people go looking for information they need the entire picture and not a biased quote unquote report and it frustrates me that we have so many things that look academic when when they're not not really i mean there's there's a level of academic study behind it but not an entire scope of it and it's just really really frustrating the amount of misinformation or skewed information, like you were discussing, um, the answer that Micro gave was very, very cherry picked for this website that wanted to give the answers that fit their narrative. That's what I'm seeing, but I'm seeing these in things that are reported as studies and as reports that people are basing policy decisions off of and basing advocacy off of. And that is that's just incredibly discouraging because how are you supposed to fight misinformation that's masked as academic information? It's just really discouraging. So that's my rant. Well, now you have it out of your system. Do you feel better? I do. I do <laughs> a little bit. I just don't, I feel very, very small in comparison to the problem sometimes, but, and also figuring all that out. Cause I was going off of some of these studies I found out that um, we were wrong. <laughs> All this work we'd done on the war on drugs and its effects on society, a lot of it was wrong. We mentioned once that if you make everyone angry, you may be doing something right. And we may have made that comment a self-fulfilling prophecy. As we complete our series on the war on drugs effect on criminal justice, we thought the corrections aspect would be the easiest to do, but we were very, very wrong. Well, and we talk about a lot about avoiding confirmation bias. And for us, the facts we ran into were uncomfortable. Some even directly contradicted what we thought to be true. And when it comes to presenting what we discovered, this has been the most difficult episode we've done. Yeah. There's much about the narrative on the war of drugs, on corrections, that cursory re research led us to believe. Yeah. Here are some of the issues we assumed were true, found pretty convincing evidence to the contrary. The first thing that, I mean, almost everyone assumes when they're talking about drug policy is that the war on drugs causes mass incarceration. But the war on drugs is not the leading cause of incarceration. In fact, 
Shocking statistics provided by John Pfaff indicate that, in reality, only about 16% of state prisoners are serving time on drug charges. And very few of them, perhaps only about 5 or 6% of that group, are both low-level and nonviolent, he writes. At the same time, more than half of all people in state prisons have been convicted of a violent crime. And by the numbers, Pfaff is correct. The latest data by the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics shows that in state prisons, where about 87% of U.S. inmates are held, nearly 53% are in for violent offenses such as murder, manslaughter, robbery, assault, and rape, while only about 16%, as Faf said, are in for drug offenses. And like he said earlier, of that 16%, only five or six are considered low-level and nonviolent, but that's the narrative that you hear everywhere: is we have to do something about the low-level and nonviolent offenders that are stuck in prison. But the numbers right. don't really bear that out. One of the things that skews statistics is something called jail churn, and it's not taken into consideration in many studies and statistics regarding incarceration rates. Every year, 626,000 people walk out of prison gates, but people go to jail 10.6 million times every year. And that's because some people can go to jail five and six times a year. Right. Jail churn is particularly high because most people in jails have not been convicted. They've only been arrested, but they count as incarcerated because they're in jail. Some have just been arrested and they're going to make bail in the next few hours or few days. Others are too poor to make bail and they're going to stay behind bars until their trial. Only a small number, and that's about 150,000 on any given day, have been convicted. And they're generally serving misdemeanor sentences under a year. So while the war on drugs has resulted in an incredibly high number of drug possession arrests, those arrests don't really translate into proportionate increases in imprisonment. So let's talk about incarceration. Okay. You have three different places really where people are incarcerated, local jails, state prisons, federal prisons. Mm -hmm. Local jails, you have 731,000 people. 20,000 are in jail for drug possession convictions. 66,000 are in jail waiting dispensation of their case, but they haven't been convicted. Now that's part of the churn. State prisons, you have 1.3 million in prisons. 200,000 are in there on drug charges. That's 15%. But when it, you come to possession charges, it's only 45,000 out of 1.3 million. That's only 3.5% of the population that are there in state prison on drug possession charges. Now, it gets higher and lower in the federal system. You have 225,000 in the system. 82,000, that's about 36%, are convicted of drug offenses. But 99.5% of those are drug trafficking. Also in the federal system, you have 18,000 that are being held by the marshals and they're awaiting dispensation of their case. 247 out of 225,000 in the system have been convicted over possession. That's a little more than one in 1,000. 
Right. But it doesn't say whether or not it's possession or simple possession. And there's a legal difference between that. But right. there is an important thing to consider regarding possession charges. While the numbers are much smaller than many narratives suggest, each number is a person. And being charged with a felony is a life-altering thing, and that charge can haunt and limit someone the course of their life. Many Democrat and Republican lawmakers agree that low-level marijuana users aren't the target of the criminal justice system, but still, way too many states charge marijuana possession as a felony. Right now, across the country, 10 states in Washington, D.C. have removed felony possession of marijuana from their books. 18 states have gone as far as to remove criminal penalties for small amounts of marijuana entirely. Others, such as Colorado, have legalized possession and used small amounts of marijuana. But there are several states that still penalize even a small amount of possession as a felony. The states where this is an issue are Arizona. In fact, 95% of possessions, according to the Federal Sentencing Commission, are from Arizona, Oklahoma, Florida, and Tennessee. Charging a simple possession, which is, again, a legal term, as a felony, creates much more chance for recidivism. However, one thing to consider is that the median weight of a simple possession was 48 pounds. And these were all border arrests in Arizona. Huh. <laughs> the, the median amount for non-border arrests for simple possession, other than non-border ones, was two ounces. Wow. See, that's, I mean, that's a huge range for simple possession. Yeah. And how you convince a judge that 48 pounds is for personal use right. <laughs> is beyond me. Yeah, yeah. But think about this, with 247 people in federal prison, 98% of these arrests coming at the border, you have roughly four people in the entire federal prison that are non-border arrests. How unlucky could you be? Right. And we couldn't find data on those four, but it's probable that they had a prior offense. Right. I mean, we're talking about four people. <laughs> so. Yeah, <laughs> Which, I mean, every every there. life matters, in my opinion. And I mean, each one of those four people have a story and it's something they're going to have to live with. But it just makes you skeptical and want to know what their story is. And there's probably a lot more involved with it. Have you ever, have you ever thought that strange things happen to us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to be one of those four, I don't know. Right. They're all like, how did this happen to me? <laughs> yeah. So... The next thing that you hear a lot in the narrative is that mandatory minimums are the problem. Mandatory sentencing guidelines are often cited as one of the main issues affecting the incarceration rate and the war on drugs. While there is truth embedded in that supposition, there are also several often cited reports that take the information out of context. First of all, what were the initial goals of mandatory sentencing? Well, they really became a thing under the Anti-Drug Act of 1986, and this bill was sponsored by a Democrat, Representative James C. Wright Jr. There were tons of co-sponsors of this bill. There were 200 Democrats, 100 Republicans, and one Independent that co-sponsored. So that may seem kind of surprising because it doesn't fit the narrative that the GOP kind of created this, but... 
One of the goals of minimum sentencing, along with the typical ideology of deterrence, you know, the belief, if you put the rat's head on a stick, that it's going to discourage all the other rats. You know, I mean, that was the, the deterrent idea. But there was also a goal of stopping racial disparity. And from a Democrat point of view, part of this goal was behind the guidelines and the presentation of the bill was before that you had the savings and loans crisis and the fact that a lot of white collar criminals were just walking away with a slap on the wrist. So unfortunately, the opposite effect was created. Mandatory guidelines create many issues, including judges can't consider the facts of each case, any mitigating circumstances or factors, things like that. Mm -hmm. The type and weight of a drug primarily determines sentence length. Now that one was stupid. I mean, because if you're talking yeah. about, I mean, that is really what created the most racial disparity was that one part of it. Well, when they changed crack to 18 times mm -hmm. the weight of cocaine. Right. It, so it removed a lot of checks and balances. Uh, minimum sentences encourage and reward those who inform on others. Also, conspiracy laws make those at the top of the drug trade and low-level offenders equally culpable. Right. So in that situation, a guy and his girlfriend that are selling or, or making drugs, they're considered the same legally as a professional, so to speak, network of, of drug traffickers. Right. And low-level offenders often get longer sentences than high-level dealers. Right, because of the deals. They don't, they don't have enough information to inform and make a deal. Well, obviously, these are all issues that can have devastating effects on people. But it is important to note a couple of things. The trend is shifting downward. Less than half of all drug offenders sentenced in fiscal year 2016 were convicted of an offense carrying a mandatory minimum penalty, which is a significant decrease from fiscal year 2010, when approximately two-thirds of drug offenders were convicted of the same offense. In fact, the number of offenders convicted of a drug mandatory minimum penalty has decreased by almost 45% since 2010, falling from 15,831 offenders to 8,760. So, the next thing to look at is, while fewer offenders were convicted of an offense carrying a mandatory minimum penalty in recent years, those who did get them, they were usually guilty of a more serious crime. So, convictions for offenses carrying a drug mandatory minimum penalty were more likely to involve the use of a weapon. Similarly, convictions for offenses carrying a drug mandatory minimum were also more likely to have resulted in bodily injury. So really the nonviolent offenses are no longer really being tried under the mandatory sentencing. And offenders that are convicted of such offenses were also more likely to have played a leadership role. So it, it is being used to target the people that they were initially trying to target, which was the higher level players in the drug trade. Mandatory sentencing guidelines bring us to another incredibly important idea in the conversation about criminal justice reform. Yes, and that is that the war on drugs is really a war on race. Our overall belief as we began research on this subject, that the biggest problem of the war on drugs was racial disparity. In the micro and in certain areas, this is true, but the numbers don't really bear it out in the macro. Right. 
Now, much of today's criminal justice war on drugs narrative stems from a book by Michelle Alexander titled The New Jim Crow. Now, in this book, Alexander cites a multitude of statistics that highlight the racial disparity in the justice system. When it comes to policing, profiling based on race, these have led to arrests that wouldn't have occurred otherwise. The war on drugs opened the door to abuses of power that disproportionately affect minorities. One of those ways was the application of mandatory sentencing. When the sentencing guidelines went into effect, crack and cocaine use was at its highest rate. Most reports and articles we found regarding drug policy cite a drug survey from 2012 that showed that cocaine usage is more prevalent in white communities than black. Yes. And our question was, what about the research that was being utilized at the time that mandatory sentencing was devastating black people? Some of the answers were found utilizing national drug surveys and usage indexes listed in a Harvard study that looked at that time period. The indexes did have trouble tracking actual usage, but they found crippling effects within black communities and a lack of those same effects on white. With the rise of crack cocaine from about 1985 to 1995, African-American communities, specifically in cities, dealt with a significant rise in homicide, drug exposure birth effects, and incidences of foster care. Statistics also indicated that usage was much higher amongst people of color at that time than statistics that newer reports cite. It would be unfortunate in the effort to drive a specific narrative that we overlook societal needs that drove that drug use to begin with. There is no question that disparity exists, but perhaps it is not where we think it is. Is it possible that drug policy at that time was crafted to try to solve a problem without regard to contextual racial issues? And inadvertently, they created a disparity that, as we've tried to correct the problem, just increased the injustice. I think that that's, I think that's a possibility, and it's something that we really need to think about. Well, thankfully, sentencing reform in 2010 eased a lot of the problem, but there's still a lot of corrections to make regarding criminal drug policy efforts from the 80s and 90s. There's no question that people of color and different races are left behind in the legal system, and this is seen in many different areas. But to ignore the root factors that shaped each specific drug policy and just call it systemic racism without utilizing a scalpel to truly reveal each separate issue, it may actually be an obstacle to finding real solutions. There's a lot of problems that we don't discuss. One of the problems that's often overlooked in criminal justice in the discussion is that the system is really more of a network of subsystems. What may indicate racism and abuse of power in one county may not exist in the other. So reform must begin at the local level. And reform is going to have to really start with prosecutors because in a courtroom and in a case, the prosecutor really has all of the power. And that is local. Yeah, it's so and the federal system, mm-hmm. but it's they have all the power. They're the ones who decide what you're getting charged with. They have the ones who decide on what kind of plea bargain to offer. I mean, they have all the power in the courtroom. Right. Judges don't like how much power they have. Mm-hmm. But anyway, prosecutors, along with other criminal justice agencies, have contributed to the drastic cr- drop in crime over the past 20 years. 
Among other things, violent crime has fallen by almost half since its peak in 91, and property crime's down 44%. So it is really truly remarkable how much safer this country has become since crime wave of the 80s and 90s. Unfortunately, as we became tougher on crime, crime rates were actually dropping and we didn't recognize it. Right. So you had more police, more prosecutors, and fewer crimes. So prosecutors became much more aggressive in charging defendants, and obviously this resulted in longer sentences. Right, because they were trying to maintain their records and things like that, right? Right, that's how prosecutors are judged, mm -hmm. by how many guilt, guilty felonies they get, right, felony pleas. That's the performance I mean, measure. Mm -hmm. Right, and in the federal system, even someone with a misdemeanor, they don't like to charge people on misdemeanors in the federal system. Right. Because it looks bad on your on your record. It's like a batting average. Mm -hmm. So the policy response to the crime epidemic yielded an unintended consequence. The United States has more than tripled its incarceration rate over the past four decades. 30% of Americans, including my co-host, <laughs> now have a criminal record. I do not. Did uh, you get that expunged? Would you stop? <laughs> You're the one that we need to discuss that with, but anyway. Also, prosecutors' decisions to cut plea deals is one of the areas where race becomes a huge factor. Research absolutely indicates that people of color get fewer and worse plea bargain deals. Some of the other issues are that prosecutors want to achieve the goal of appearing hard on crime, so they push convictions. And this is amazing. It's astounding. There's a contingency reward in place for some prosecutors. Bonuses and house rewards based on conviction rates. That's insane. Yeah. Now, with all this to consider, it's no surprise that prosecutor discretion is often, often greatly underestimated in increased incarcerations. Right. Well, Pfaff, who penned the groundbreaking book that shattered the war on drugs narrative, offers a tentative menu of options to limit prosecutorial power, to establish guidelines for charging and plea bargaining, which New Jersey has already done, to make prosecutors pay from their county budgets for the bed space they use in state prisons. I think that one is really interesting. That one really thinks outside the box. And also to provide more funding for public defenders. And last but not least, attack public complacency. In 46 states, prosecutors are elected, and 85% of them run without opposition. I know in my county, if you're not a Republican, you're not going to be prosecutor or sheriff for the most part. Right. Well, So a lot of times people don't even run against them. Right. It's... And people need to be more aware of their local issues. And that's kind of what frustrates me. Media doesn't really talk about that. And um, they pick up narratives that aren't completely true and don't give the whole picture. And so the reforms that need to happen really aren't happening because people are focused on the wrong thing. Another thing that does not get discussed enough is probation. Probation seems like a much better option than incarceration, but often it can become a trap. Probation is another area where racial disparity is at its zenith. African Americans are on probation almost three times the rate of whites. And one 
study consistently found disparity in probation revocation outcomes to the disadvantage of Black probationers. In all four study sites, Black probationers experienced having their probation um, revoked at a significantly higher rate than white and Hispanic probationers. Revocation rates or revocation rates for Black probationers in this study ranged from 55 to 100% higher than that of their counterparts. The study could not account for the disparity, but they did indicate that bias was the likely issue. Also, probation fees are overwhelmingly burdensome on already impoverished people. I, I really think a lot of times as I was going through the research, it's it's more of a war on class than it is anything else. Oh, it's a war on poor people. It, it is. It, it really, really is. is. But the one thing to look at is the war on drugs did not actually leave a significant long-term change in probation rates. From 1990, the rate was 2,670,000, and in 2000, the rate was 3,800,000. So the number of probationers shifted 43%, which, which is significant. But then from 2000 to 2016, the numbers actually shifted downward, with the highest rates being from 2006 to 2008. So they're actually lower now than they were in 2000. And they're, they're rapidly going towards where they were um, in 1990, actually. So, And a lot of the studies that we saw as we were researching this is showing that the racial disparity is decreasing right. in prisons. Right. It was kind of so an interesting our, thing. My conclusion on this was that the accepted narrative that the war on drugs did cause the great, the great spike in incarceration rates is – not nearly as clear as people think. Now, many studies say it did. Many scholars say it did. But at the end of the day, drug offenses are not close to the leading cause of incarceration in this country. An overall tough-on-crime reaction to an increase in that violent crime wave we had in the 80s and 90s is really what played a much bigger role. Right. And the thing is, when you look at Pew and Gallup, People don't really want to be soft on violent crime. So if they really want to no. reform incarceration rates, it's going to cause people to have to do something that they really don't want to do. Right. And that's, that. you know, people don't realize that. You hear one story about someone getting out of jail or getting out of prison that had a violent crime in their past and communities just go crazy. So... People don't really want to see that. And until we do, we're not going to see some of the changes that um, people talk about wanting. There are just so many problems within the subsystems of criminal justice that need to be addressed. And I think it it's possible that we're all focusing on these really big major issues that are much more difficult to solve than making some common sense reforms that can make a really big difference. We also need to recognize the strides that have been made in the last decade and utilize some of the outside-of-the-box solutions like drug courts. Let's not throw out the things that could work just because they need reform. Also, I personally, and this is just my little crazy thought, but I think it would be interesting to see drug courts treated like treated like white-crawler crime be, where there are different prisons for those types of crimes. I think that there should be drug prisons 
that only drug offenses go there. And there may be kind of, um, it's just really not fair for some drug offenses to be in the same place as a lot of the violent crimes. The problem with that is a lot of drug crime goes with guns and things of that nature. So it gets very complicated there. The main lesson that I learned from doing this episode is that facts don't always bear the weight of my emotional response to injustice. I can get all my information from the most popular studies and not be right. And I always have to dig deeper to see the whole picture. I've talked before on other episodes about how my faith informs me not to try to attribute bad intent. What if we tried, what if we all tried to apply that here? If we assume that everyone is trying to solve a problem instead of demonizing those that don't try to solve them our specific way, perhaps we could find some points of convergence and actually get some important stuff done. And that is all we have to say about that. Yep. Uh, we could have done 20 episodes on right, this. Right, right. We really kind of hit the high high points because it was so it was just so deep with research right and the thing is i mean we were trying to look at just the war on drugs effect on criminal justice there are a lot of issues within criminal justice itself that need to be addressed but we wanted to kind of start with the war on drugs and that was big enough and invasive enough so we want to really thank everyone who takes the time to listen to us. And you can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we would really, really, really appreciate you dropping us a positive review. We'd love to hear. I love to read reviews, so make me happy. Yes, make her happy, please. <laughs> please. We have a pretty active Facebook group. If you'd like to join, you can find us on Facebook at Ransom Reason Podcast Facebook group. We'd also like to thank our moderators for everything they do. There. Yes. Yes. You can follow us on Twitter at Rants Reason. If you would like to help us offset costs of the show, which we would greatly appreciate, we do have a Patreon page. You can find us on Patreon as Rants and Reason. We we really want you to know that we appreciate all the support you get, such as word of mouth recommendations shares on social media, and iTunes reviews. And if you do share, we'd love to hear about it. Like, just let us know that you shared it because sometimes our numbers go up and we're like, did someone share it? And then we try to find it. <laughs> so we yeah. really, really would love to hear that. And we absolutely appreciate our Patreon sponsors, Jennifer Anon. Steven well, those are two Fox. separate people. It's not Jennifer Anon. Jennifer and Anon. <laughs> Of course, Ben, who got the bronze for best British true crime podcast. Did I say that? The Congratulations, last Ben. Jeremy Collins from Podcast We Listen to. Timmy, who's in Europe right now from History Dweebs. Austin, John Payne from the Weekly Wrap Up. Tony Carr from Lipstick Heels, Western Zeal. Michelle John. Yes, our friend Michelle. Now, speaking of friends, we're going to talk about some unlikely friends. This is the story of Mel Nelson Mandela and the young man who guarded him in prison, Christo Brand. Not Russell, Christo. Mandela looked beyond the uniform. He looked at me as an individual, as a human being, said Brand. He was my prisoner, but he was my friend. He was like a father to me. 
Brand was 18 when he first met Mandela, who was 60 at the time, and he urged the younger man to continue his studies. Over the years, the two grew close, and Brand paid him back with small acts of kindness, such as allowing Mandela to hold his infant granddaughter that his wife had brought to show him, despite a prison rule that forbade inmates from coming into contact with children. He said there were moments when their friendship made being Mandela's jailer a very difficult job. I've been in situations where prisoners were beaten, he said, when when that happened, I couldn't step in and try to stop them because I would be in trouble. I couldn't do anything other than feel sorry about the situation. Sometimes I would try to accommodate him when he was locked away in isolation, and I just talked to him and tried to make him feel comfortable. It was difficult to both be his prison warden and his friend. There were a lot of times when I had to burn his letters after being told to do so by the security branch. Sometimes I would put a letter in my pocket and pass it to him, saying, I need it back in 10 minutes. After his release, the South African leader never forgot his friendship with Brand. He even gave him a job in Parliament drafting the Constitution. Brand went on to travel with Mandela to the U.S. and Holland, attended his 80th birthday, and was also at his funeral. Brand, now 53, said his enduring memory of Mandela was his immense tolerance and commitment to peace. He said, I asked him after his release, don't you hate the white people in this country? And he told me, Mr. Brand, I can't hate white people because my friends are all white, but I can hate the system that's in place that leads to the oppression of one people by another. That, that I can hate. A prison guard and the prisoner that changed him. If they can do it, we can too. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.